Good morning, all. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 52. We have been looking at Isaiah. Our focus is on chapter 51 through 55. Our theme has been the people of God in the Old Testament. We're there because the term church used in the New Testament really is a word that comes from the Old Testament, has its roots in the Old Testament. Body is sort of a New Testament, uh, how would you say, new wineskin, whereas church is bringing the whole Old Testament perspectives, prophecies, imagery of the people of God into the new covenant in Christ. Isaiah 51 through 55 is a unique unit. All of the biblical covenants are represented in this section. And this section is the final culmination and fulfillment of all the prophecies that are, have gone on in Isaiah. It's just a sort of a culminating section showing how these things are fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Now again, um, to appreciate this section, really to appreciate the prophets altogether, there needs to be some familiarity with the divine covenants. There are four in the Old Testament and one in the New. Noah, Genesis 9, Abraham, Genesis 12, Moses, Exodus 19, where that covenant is ratified really 19 through 24. Um, but it begins in Exodus 19 <clears throat> and 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. And of course the New Covenant is ratified in the death and resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> We read that at the end of every gospel. The prophets have their place in the Old Testament, the Old Testament revelation, because they gather up all the prophecies and imageries and promises and types and shadows and symbols that have gone before, that are all really drawn from the Old Testament covenants. And they gather up that language and that imagery uh, they look to the Psalms, and they pull all that together, and they paint a picture of the future of a coming new covenant. Now, <clears throat> I go through these sort of introductions, because I don't know what else to do, how else to convey that if you're going to appreciate the Old Testament, not only you have to see the prophets um, in that they come after the covenants and therefore gather the imagery of those covenants together. And that's why that language is used, uh, language of temples, et cetera, et cetera, to paint the future. <clears throat> but also you kind of have to have a little bit of history, not a lot, but a little bit of history, particularly Isaiah, to really fully appreciate because a lot of things are going to be said that have significance within the historical context of Isaiah. And so remember that Isaiah spoke, wrote around 700 BC. Assyria was the dominant world empire at that time. As a matter of fact, Assyria, which is gonna be mentioned in our passages today, Assyria in 722 BC took northern Israel captive. Southern Judah was protected by God. Isaiah 37 through 39 records Hezekiah, where the Assyrians come and try to take Jerusalem also. And God sends an angel, destroys the army. Uh, and they have to retreat. And for the next hundred years, the greatest empire the world had seen up to that point could not touch Jerusalem. They would not touch. They dare not touch Jerusalem. 
Isaiah is writing not only to the people of his day in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, but he's also writing, particularly in this section 40 through 55, he's writing to a future set of people who will be captive. They will be carried away by Babylon. Chapter 39, there's sort of a hint at that. And then chapter 40 begins to speak to those people who are going to be carried away captive. Jeremiah is, is really the one who's the weeping prophet who is speaking to the people of that age 100 years later, around 600 B.C. Daniel and Ezekiel speak to the group while they are in captivity themselves. Isaiah not only speaks to the captives and their captivity, but he speaks to their restoration and their return. And that restoration and return that's promised by Isaiah, promised by Jeremiah, promised by other prophets, is recorded. It actually occurred. Ezra and Nehemiah are the history, the underlying history, and Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are the main prophets speaking to that group as they rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the second temple. And this happens under the Persians. So we have the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Persians. But Isaiah very clearly, very obviously, is not just speaking about a historical circumstance of captivity around you know, 550 BC, thereabouts, if you want sort of a center point. He's not speaking of a return from 536 down to 400 B.C. He's not speaking of that only. He is speaking to an era inaugurated by a new covenant in which God will bring a salvation that's not just to a Israel after the flesh, but it is to all nations. And so when you look at that and you you see this bigger picture of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah is speaking of a new covenant in which all nations will be brought into the salvation of God. He speaks of an ultimate day of judgment, and he speaks in chapter 65 and 66 of a new heavens and a new earth. This is an era in Isaiah. This is not just an event, but this is an era inaugurated by the death and resurrection and the reign of Messiah. For Isaiah, the Messiah is going to come The arm of the Lord's going to come. He's going to die, and he's going to rise, and he's going to reign. And it is that reign of Messiah that is inaugurated upon and based upon his death and resurrection that we have the era of the kingdom of God, the era of the new covenant, the era in which you and I are at this present moment, the era of the body of Christ, the era of the church of Christ. Now in this era the gospel will go to all nations. And God out of all the nations, Jews and Gentiles gathers together as it says in Ephesians, one new humanity. And this era by the way culminates in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the clear picture. The picture is not that it culminates in some intermediate temporary reign on earth. That is never portrayed anywhere in the prophets. There are those who impose that view onto the prophets, but it does not emerge from the prophets. And one other thing we sort of have to have a background on, 
is <clears throat> what about Jerusalem and Zion? And this is just sort of a picture of there are three physical places. They become representative of the people of God and the kingdom of God. And God's working with people. There's the land of Canaan. And you narrow it down to Jerusalem. And you get in Jerusalem, you narrow it down to Mount Zion. And that terminology is all over from David onward. And in this terminology, Jerusalem and Zion become interchangeable. And so always remember that. When God is speaking of Zion, he's speaking of Jerusalem. When he speaks of Jerusalem, he's, Zion is included. And it says in the scriptures that we've seen that you know, God dwells there. Well, does he really actually dwell there? Or is he saying that these things represent where my heart is? Because in the old covenant period of promise, all of the symbols, types, and shadows all pointed to something greater, an ideal Zion, a Zion that culminates in a new heavens and a new earth. Now, Jerusalem and Zion, again, you have to have a little bit of history of it. Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Babylonians in 600 B.C., then the people went into captivity, and we can read about that in Daniel. And Daniel chapter 9 says, okay, I want to know what's going to happen to Jerusalem, and God sends an angel, and there's this brief four or five sentence long prophecy which presents the history of Jerusalem. Now, in recent history in the church, this prophecy has been focused on and used to talk about an antichrist. That there's Jerusalem, oh well, and then there's 69 weeks here of just Jerusalem being built, and then we're going to pull this last week off, the 70th week, and we're going to put it over at the end of the church age, as they say, and it's going to be the antichrist and all this stuff there. I'll give them a lot of credit for ingenuity and creativity. I will say that. But when you really read the passage in Daniel 9. It's real clear what it's about. It's about the history of Jerusalem from the time of the restoration in around 536 B.C. till the time of its final destruction in 70 A.D. And when you read it like that, you go, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. There's a reason that Jerusalem was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed because it Housed, or it was the geographical place of a temple. Within that temple were all the accoutrements of the old covenant. But when Jesus came and in 30 AD had a final dinner with his disciples and he held up a cup, it was the Passover, and he held up a cup and he said, This is the new covenant. We're not doing Passovers anymore because it is now fulfilled. We're not going to go to temple anymore because we are the temple of God. We're not going to worry about candelabra because the true candles are in heaven and we read about those in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And you can go on and on with that recognition that the new covenant brings into reality things which the old covenant and all of its accoutrements could only represent in type and shadow. And so God destroys Jerusalem for a number of reasons, but the main one 
is that it's done. The old covenant is over. We read that all over the New Testament. There is no old covenant anymore. We don't go to Moses to get to Christ or to get to God. We go to Jesus in the new covenant. And so God swept away all those symbols of the old covenant because they had done their job. They had fulfilled their purpose. As one person says, you know, when it's a dark night, you light a candle. When the sun rises, you blow it out because you don't need it anymore. So that is the history of Jerusalem. And I only say that because some have probably grown up hearing about Daniel and the 70 weeks and Jerusalem that's going to be rebuilt and a millennium and all those things and that they just don't exist in the prophets. You will not see them in the prophets. People, again, will gather information and material and build a doctrine from the prophets, but it does not emerge from the prophets. So Jerusalem and Zion are just an interesting thing is that Jerusalem is destroyed, it's restored and destroyed again. And the language of the new covenant when it refers to Jerusalem is very clear. It's the Jerusalem that is above, which is our mother, Galatians chapter 4. Or Hebrews 12, we have come unto Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and an innumerable company of angels. That's where the Jerusalem that we're interested in is. We are not attached to an old Jerusalem, which Galatians 4 says is in bondage with her children, symbolizing the old covenant. But we are attached in the new covenant to a Jerusalem that's above. You see a picture of it in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, the heavenly Jerusalem. And if that's not enough, what is the picture of Revelation 21 and 22? But it's that heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. Again, all symbolic of all the grand realities, which we're actually going to read about in Isaiah 54. And this isn't, some would say, well, that's just all millennial theology. I'm like, no, it's not. This all derives from Isaiah, the five chapters we're dealing with. And we're going to see it absolutely in clarity and specificity. So it's a long introduction, again, because I'm having to, number one, set sort of background to really appreciate this. Uh, Isaiah chapter 51 through 55. I know for myself, I didn't know these things, and for years I'd read it and be lost. Like, why would he say that? What's he talking about there? And then also have to sort of unravel some of the confused futurism that has gripped the church for the last hundred years. So we went to Isaiah 51, chapter 51, and there we saw Abraham and Sarah are mentioned. We saw a new creation being mentioned. We saw justification by faith being mentioned. My righteousness is forever. We saw this would go to all nations. We saw about a new exodus, that this this salvation to come is like the old exodus, so it's a new exodus. And we saw a statement, sorry, I didn't have enough spaces in my little column there, so I had to put judgment up at the top. We saw judgment, a clear judgment, an ultimate judgment, a final judgment. That's all in just Isaiah chapter 51. This is clear as a bell. And so if you start to say, okay, we'll take chapter 51, and Steve's thesis is all five covenants appear in chapter 51 through 55, what covenants are referenced in Isaiah 51? And if you look at that material, all nations brings you to Moses. I'm sorry, Abraham. A new exodus brings you to Moses. And all this being given to the nations is a new covenant. Because the Mosaic covenant was not for the Gentiles. 
And so we have these covenants being referenced and portrayed. We looked at Isaiah 52 specifically week before last. And here you have Isaiah addressing the people of God, and he's using representative language of Zion and Jerusalem. O Zion, O Jerusalem, O captive Jerusalem, O captive daughter of Zion. It's poetic language, poetic reference to the people of God. Anybody who has ears to hear, anybody who follows the Lord. And remember, most Israelites did not follow the Lord. When I was a young Christian, I thought, well, everybody who was an Israelite was a Christian. That was just my simplistic thinking until I started, what, they're doing this? What, they're doing that? Are you kidding? And it really, it was hard for me for a while until I figured out, oh, you know, not everybody who's of the seed of Abraham after the flesh knows the Lord, is a person of faith. This chapter starts out with, wake up, wake up, awake. Respond to the faith of the promises that were articulated in the previous chapter, chapter 51. God speaks of Abraham and Sarah. Remember them. Go to the rock from whence you are hewn, and I am about to bring to fruition and bring into reality everything that I promised to Abraham, everything that I accomplished in that miraculous child of Sarah. It's going to be like Eden, it's going to be a new creation. And my righteousness will be there, not your righteousness, but mine, a righteousness that I will provide, a righteousness that is not attained through works, but a righteousness that is a gift from God. It is clear as a bell. It is a gift from God. Justification, Romans 3 through 5, is right here in the book of Isaiah, just as bright as you could ever make it. God calls upon this generation that he's speaking to, a generation yet to come. And he calls upon them to respond to God's promise of deliverance. Wake up. And he says, clothe yourself, clothe yourself in your strength. Clothe, your, clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. Awake out of your groggy stupor. Take hold of faith. Be strong in the Lord. Regain your focus your personal identity, your collective identity, your dignity, your privilege, and your purpose as the people of God. This may very well have reference to Exodus 28, 2 and 40, where God says, I'm giving to Aaron and to his son's garments. They are beautiful garments, and they are for glory and for beauty. Speaking finally to those garments we put on in the new covenant. Put on the robe of righteousness. Put on the garments of salvation. Put them on and wear them gladly and wear them proudly. Awake out of your stupor, O Christian. Understand who you are in this world and that you have a significant purpose. The most powerful thing you can do is get on your knees and pray to the living God for the kingdom of God that is transpiring all over this world. Christians, embrace your identity and your blessedness that you have in Christ. Put on your beautiful garments. And again, Isaiah writing to this group of captives that are going to be forlorn and depressed and figuring this is where we're going to be the rest of our life. Who can fight the Babylonians? He says, shake yourself from the dust. 
Rise up, loose yourself from the chains around you. Be decisive, claim your authority as the children of God, as the people of God. In the new covenant, take up your cross, live for Jesus Christ, do it. Is it going to be easy? Absolutely not. Is it going to be worth it? Absolutely yes. Be strong in the Lord. And he's saying to Jerusalem, hey, you're the holy city. Well, wait a minute, Jerusalem is in tatters and torn to the ground. And everybody who crisscrosses the place from every nation just mocks. Here's Jerusalem, a testimony to the sin and the wickedness and the rebellion of Israel and God's judgment upon them. And God is saying, hey, there's going to come a time when the uncircumcised, the nations, will not be crisscrossing on their camels and their caravans through Jerusalem and kind of snickering at laughing what happened to you and mocking you. There will be a time when the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come to you. Now here's a picture, and it's important to read Isaiah, particularly here, because there's this phrase, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Can anybody remember where else that terminology occurs outside of the Old Testament? In chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, New Jerusalem coming out of heaven, the last thing said in the chapter is the uncircumcised and the unclean will not enter that city. Pulled right out of the book of Isaiah. And so if you don't see what's going on here, you won't see the imagery that's going on there. And that book of Revelation, properly understood, is absolutely the most powerful book in the Bible. It will change your life like no other book once you get a hold of it, and more importantly, it gets a hold of you. And you can't understand that book unless you're familiar with the Old Testament. 2 Peter 3.15, but according to his promise, we look for what? A new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells what? Righteousness. We're not going to see the uncircumcised or the unclean in the new heavens and in the new earth. Symbolic language for the wicked. We will not see them there. So we begin now and take up our place in chapter 3 and 4. And remember, folks, some of you have been here every Sunday for this. Some folks haven't, which is the reason I go over this sort of review. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we continue in Isaiah chapter 52. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne. And it is marvelous because you sit upon it. Lord, you are matchless. You are infinite. You are eternal. You're the glorious God. Lord, you've made a whole vast heavens and earth that puzzles us in its, just its, its massiveness, puzzles us in so many ways. And it also shows us your transcendence. We look at the heavens and all we can do in the end is just stand in awe. We can listen to the physicists and look at their equations and the <clears throat> astrophysicists and all they have to say, but in the end, those heavens are there, just beautiful gorgeous, and we stand awestruck, and you put them there to, in a physical way, remind us of how great you are. We praise you that you are the great creator. 
And Lord, we thank you for this book of Isaiah in which you, 700 years before the coming of your son, you bear testimony in absolute detail of the new covenant that would come and ultimately save men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation all over this whole entire world. Generation after generation of a world that opposes you but because Jesus is at your right hand and has a rod of iron, and because he reigns, Lord, he reaches into every circumstance in human history, and he saves his people from their sin. Then, Lord, thank you you've saved us. Thank you you reached in our circumstance. You guided every little detail of it to bring us to that place where we would hear your gospel whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, we would finally hear it and we would know its power and you would speak to our hearts and you would save us from our sin. Lord, here we are in these chapters in Isaiah, chapters that are precious. Lord Jesus can't help but think that you read them a whole bunch of times yourself because these are the chapters, the middle of which 53 you would fulfill in detail, in awful detail. Lord, just pray you'd speak to us this morning. That we would not just write this off as just some Old Testament language or it's a little confusing, but we would pay attention. We would awake, as you tell us. Wake up, wake up, wake up. And give attention to these things because they are our inheritance. This is our heritage that we're reading. This is our blessing. This is our glory. This is the absolute testimony and, as it were, apologetic that the gospel that we believe in are the gospels of God and no others because no others reflect this Old Testament realities. Lord, give us confidence. Fill our souls as we read these very passages. Speak to us personally. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 52 continues. The people of God, he's saying, everybody wake up, rise up, loose your chains, get ready, because I'm about to bring a redemption. And we have, first of all, this terminology, for thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. God is speaking emphatically, pay attention because I'm speaking. God draws our our attention to the one speaking, for thus says the Lord God. There's a, a personal expression here. Thus says the Lord God, I am a person. This is not a philosophy. I am a person, and I'm speaking to you, and I'm speaking to you with authority and with certainty. Is that how you approach the Bible? When you come to the Bible, do you have a sense whether it's subliminal or whether it's overt, do you have a sense that this is the word of God? And it comes to us with authority and with certainty. Do you love this word because it's God speaking to you, sometimes in hard things, but nevertheless, God speaking to you? Do you come to it with that sense? Is this the word of the living God for you? Does the word of God instill in you the fear of God? Thus says the Lord who made heaven and earth. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention. Embrace this. 
Does the word of God come to you like that? I'm not meaning are you having a great experience of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's going to come and go. But do you have the pilot light, that inner sense that this is the word of God, whether I want to hear it or not, this is the word of God and I am held captive by it and I am answerable and accountable to it. The fear of God. And do you have that sense of trust and confidence in God? The world's a mess. My life's not looking real good outwardly, but I can open this book and I can hang my hat there. Thus says the Lord. Now the background is a slave auction where people were bought and sold. This was standard fare in the world up until just a few centuries ago. In our country, there's all kind of confusion of people trying to say, well, America is the racist nation. It's like, no, the world was a racist world in the sense that there was slavery everywhere, and it really wasn't based on racism, by the way. American slavery did not start out as like we're going to go get a certain kind or color of people. That's not how it started. It was used later in order to justify it, and it was wretched and horrible, but it wasn't the beginning of it. The whole world believed in slavery. If you walked down the street and saw a slave, a person you knew was a slave, you went, oh, well, go figure, poor fellow. A slave auction, this is sort of standard fare. When you were a kid, you'd grow up and see a slave auction. You'd ask your parents what was going on, and they'd tell you. And you'd go, people could get bought and people could get sold. Yep, that was part of the world. We're not saying it was good. We're just saying it was real. A slave auction. And God says this, you went into captivity, you went into bondage, for free. I mean, how would you like to be a slave on a slave block where you're given away because that's the best price you can get? I mean, I wouldn't want to be there at all, but you know, if that's the best price that you can fetch, like, man, I'm a zero. <laughs> I'm giving away for free. I'm truly a zero. God says you were sold for nothing. Assyria paid nothing when it came and took northern Israel captive according to the will of God. Babylon paid nothing for southern Judah when three times Babylon came and deported the people and deported the people and deported the people from their own homes, their own heritage, their own legacy, gone. They didn't didn't pay any money for that. God gave it to them for free. You were sold for nothing. And it's God who gave Israel, whether northern Israel or southern Judah, it is God who gave Israel to these secular empires because of Israel's sin and idolatry. You want a sure way to end up in bondage of some kind or another? Sin against the Lord and take on humanism as your God, or in our day, we're going back to actual idolatry in cases. That's a sure recipe for bondage. But Israel was sold for nothing. And yet God says, now the time has come. 
or you will be redeemed without money. Redeemed without money. God now introduces the themes which will be elaborated throughout the following chapters of 52, 53, 54, and 55. God is beginning to now state his marvelous redemption in which he will reacquire the people of Israel and it will be without money. There will be no exchange of economic currency. And if one is paying attention, this should register a huge question. How are you going to redeem a slave without money? I mean, it just doesn't happen back then. You know, it's strange to give a slave away, but then to go and obtain one back without money? How is this going to happen? Now, the average view of human beings is that sin is not a big deal with God or for God. Okay, I've sinned, yeah, but, you know, my good works balance out my bad works. And I just remind you, this, you know, most of us here, we know this. This is not true, but remember, the rest of the world thinks like this. My sin isn't really that bad. And so some good will smooth it all out with God. It'll take care of it. And God, I'm not even thinking that maybe my sin is a problem for God. You know, the judge of the universe who has to maintain his own righteousness in his universe. Who says, I'm absolutely 100% holy. I am light. No one considers that sin sends ripples through the universe that God himself has to deal with. He can't walk away from it. He can't get off his throne and say, ah, well, you know, it's just some sin. I'll just sweep it under the carpet. I'll just forgive it and we can move on. See, the average person thinks like that. But that is not how God thinks. When you start to see your sin in its true colors before the living God and you start to understand what sin is, it is ultimately against God. It is ultimately a display of rebellion against God. And it is ultimately something that God must deal with because God has to go to sleep at night with a good conscience and God has to know that he is in charge of his universe and God has to bring his righteousness to bear in the entire universe no matter how big it is. See, one of the things when God comes to a human being, what does he do? He starts to show them their sin. He shows them their sin, not in what it's done to other people, but he shows them their sin with reference to himself. Yeah, what we can do to other people is awful, but it's nothing compared to what we do to God. As I've said before, I'll say again, if you haven't seen your sin as unforgivable, you have not seen your sin. I'm not saying that sin is unforgivable. I'm saying that if you haven't seen it as that. Sin is forgivable, but it's forgivable on one basis alone. It's forgivable on an adjustment within God's universe where the righteousness of God is satisfied. 
and the justice of God is maintained. There is no forgiveness unless those two things are rectified and satisfied. You go to all the other religions and they'll go, well, you know, you get karma. Or there's good works and bad works and they'll, they'll figure themselves out. Islam. Karma if you're a Hindu or a Buddhist. Sin is just something that, you know, isn't really a reality or a concern if you're a philosopher. It's just an unfortunate part of the physical world. But this is God's universe. So once you see your sin, once you are in a place to see what it, God has to do to deal with your sin and rectify your sin and you not end up in a lake of fire forever, then these words are sweet, redeemed without money. Redeemed with nothing but the grace of God. Redeemed by a God who himself satisfies his own justice and adjusts his own universe and fixes sin forever. Redeemed without money. My sin is awful. My sin is against God. My sin has deserved consequences, and those consequences are enormous. My sin is enormous, and its consequences are enormous. My sin is unescapable, and its consequences are unescapable. How can I possibly be redeemed without paying the price? See, that is the question put before us in Isaiah 51 through 55. A promised redemption, a promised righteousness, but now we have to deal with the cost and the price of that righteousness. God brings before us what he's talked about in the previous chapter. God brings up the context of the Exodus to explain what's going to happen. My people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there, Isaiah 52, 3 and 4. God, in one sentence, rehearses the story of Joseph and the migration of his brothers and his family and his father down into Egypt. When they went down into Egypt, they were free men. They were associated with the one who is second in command in Egypt. My people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there, but what happened? Where did they end up as we open Exodus chapter 1? They were slaves. They were in bondage and oppression. So there's the first instance where the people of God were oppressed and in bondage. Well, then the Assyrian came and 722 carried all the northern Israelites away into captivity, oppression, and bondage. The era of the Assyrian dominance and the deportation of northern Israel. God reminds me of that. And by implication, of course, associated with this, of course, is, well, 
Babylon. They're the current captors. They are included, really subliminally, as it were, or sort of just inferred in this list of oppressors. And Egypt and Assyria and Babylon had no cause or reason for their actions. The Assyrian oppressed them without cause. And isn't that hard when someone just digs into your life and they just twist you and turn you simply because they can do it? And that's what happened here. Oh, sure, they would reason that, yeah, I'm supposed to go out and murder everybody and take everybody captive and destroy their lives so that I can have some personal benefit and satisfy my greed and trophies and gold and whatever booty I can take. Because that's how the world thought. But there was no cause. Israel did not provoke the Egyptians. How did they end up in slavery? The politics over several hundred years, they ended up in slavery. The Israelites, northern Israel, did not really provoke the Assyrians. They were certainly saying, we really don't like this oppression, but the Assyrians were like, hey, we want your tribute. See, in the ancient world, pretty much like the current world, but in the ancient world, if you had a world empire, then you were the biggest gang on the street. And so you could come in and you can say, give me money or I'm going to beat you up. I mean, starts bullies on the, bullies on the playground taking lunch money end up to be bullies on the world stage destroying nations. But there's no difference. A nation state is not justified in waging war because they just want something. It's a war of oppression, and God thinks the same thing of the bullies on the world stage as he does the bullies on the playground. It's without cause. There's no justification for it. There's no reason for it. In each case, the cause is worldly ambition. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. God emphasizes this. The only ultimate cause was God's judgment on the nation. Think about it. He's saying, you know, there there wasn't some political real reason for you to come and be brought into bondage It was my will, my purpose, some of it in response to your sins, some of it to create a whole background for redemption. The Lord declares again in an authoritative way, whether it was the Egyptians, whether it was the Assyrians, or whether it was the current Babylonians, when they took the people captive and put them in bondage and slavery, what came with it but mockery and howling Laughing. Those wretches, those Israelites. All the names that they were called. And then look at their God. Their God can't save them. Look at them. They're all in bondage. Look at their God. The name of God is continually blasphemed all the day long. They mocked the name of the Lord. They just didn't mock the Israelites in bondage. They mocked the name of the Lord. And they mocked everything that that name stands for. And is that not what we find ourselves in today? We are in a spiritual Babylon, a world that is aligned against God. And everywhere they can, they denounce the true God. Everywhere. You can't put on a program just about nature. And what are they telling you? You're here because of, well, Darwinism. There's no God. 
And anybody who thinks you're here by creation, you just get laughed off the stage of scientific recognition. They denounce the true God, the new crop of new atheists. And there's always been atheists. And there's always been people denouncing God, just the new crop that we experience, just, just are radical in their statement. They're belligerent. They're boastful. There's no God simply because they say so. They have no evidence, by the way. Don't think that because they have some, you know, intellectual recognition behind them, they're scientists or that, a scientist knows nothing about whether there's a God or not. Their credentials lend nothing to their statements about God, absolutely nothing. The only reason they denounce the true God is because that's their opinion, because that's what they want, because they don't want accountability. And my, oh my, how surprised they're going to be when they face God on their deathbed. And the new atheism and the new idol of raw humanism claiming human ascendancy. Human beings are in charge. We're the best. We're the ultimate. We're the greatest, even though we have no basis to say that because supposedly we're just an accident. By the way, that's a powerful argument. It's not just a mockery against them. It's not trading mockery for mockery. The humanist and the atheist has absolutely no basis whatsoever to claim humans as having inherent dignity or honor more than a cockroach. It's just not there. Now they want to affirm it in their existential leap into faith because they've completely erased God from existence and reality and all of a sudden they're like, okay, where's meaning and purpose and significance? Oh, we'll just affirm it. And that'll be good enough until they get their tombstone. The new atheism and the new humanism claims cultural victory and howls at God. The new atheism and the new humanism has captured every cultural institution right now. And they just belch this stuff out endlessly in the media. They blaspheme the name of God continually all the day long. What is God's response? What is his immediate remedy? With all this denial of God going on, what does God do? I mean, you and I, we'd go, hey, how about some lightning bolts from heaven? You know, make them see the error of their ways. But... uh, That's just not God's way. In contrast to those who brazenly mock God's name and trade him in for the statue of humanism, and by the way, if you, the best place you could go to right now in the Bible to understand what's going on is Daniel chapter 3. Not 2, not 7, Daniel 3. Go there. You had a statue that was what? 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And it was a statue of a man, of humanism. 
And whenever the, the band played the national anthem of Babylon, what did everybody have to do? Turn to Babylon and bow down and worship. And what happened if you didn't do that? You got thrown into the furnace of fire. The new atheists. If we can't get it by conviction, then we will get it by force. But we are going to eliminate the true God and replace him with humanism. That has been what Satan has been trying to do since the Garden of Eden. He tried it at the Tower of Babel and God said, nope, not happening now. He's tried it multiple times ever and God keeps saying, nope, not happening yet. But when you look around and see how the whole world is now captured by the new atheism and the new humanism, you start kind of wonder, like, is this the time? When Satan is going to have his final say and gather the nations together in that spiritual war and encompass the camp of the saints. Just a picture, a symbolic picture of the war against the saints, not waged with tanks and guns, but waged on the battlefield of culture and the social order. Waged in such a way as to completely and utterly erase and snuff out God's witness to himself. That's the world we're in. Can't tell you where the timeline is. If I told you, you'd have to leave because I would be a false prophet. If Jesus came down from heaven and told you where you are on the timeline, guess what? You wouldn't listen to him because he already said, I don't even know the day or hour. So when some prophet says, well, it's going to happen around then because I've done all these calculations from the Old Testament, it just blows my mind. I'm like, even Jesus said he doesn't know when this is going to happen. It belongs to the Father. Until then, Jesus himself is just doing what he's supposed to be doing, saving people from their sin, reaching into little villages in Africa, reaching into big, sophisticated cities in New York, reaching everywhere, manipulating things, reducing the opposition, working providentially to have his people be brought from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. And that's what this verse is about. While the world is blaspheming and the world is opposing and the world is busy about thinking they're replacing God with themselves, God says, my people are going to know my name. You see, the way Jesus counters all this right now is to reach into their midst and pull people out of it by showing them who he is. It's interesting in 1 John, it says, verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When you go to the Gospel of John, Jesus is the light of the world. Go to the first verses of the Gospel of John, in him was life and the life is the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. See, the way God saves sinners is he just reaches down into their heart and gives them light. He shows them his name. He shows them who he is. 
And once you've seen God, you can't unsee him, can you? As one fellow remarked in a commentary, one of the most awesome commentaries on 1 John ever written, Robert Law, he remarked that the first thing any human being has in common with God is light. God shows himself. And all of a sudden we see what? Who God is. And then we see who I am, who you are. And then we see what sin is because God has given us light to see the things we were blind to all our days until that moment. God reveals his name. He makes his name known to people and that is how he saves human beings from their predicament of sin and darkness and spiritual bondage. All the things that Egypt and Babylon and Assyria represent. God reveals his person. He comes as a personal being. He doesn't come as a philosophy. Before I got saved, I was looking in all the wrong places for God. I was into Zen Buddhism, transcendental meditation. Now, for me, it didn't take me long to realize, okay, this is a dead end. So I wasn't in them all that long. I wasn't caught up in them. I just real clearly said, God's not here because I'm not finding what I'm looking for. I'm an empty soul. I'm a broken soul. One of my acquaintances killed himself in a mental hospital, and I was next. And I knew it. I had no reason to breathe. It was an effort to get up in the morning and even breathe. And the first time I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very first time in my life, 19 and a half years old, some 50 years ago, God shined light into my soul. And I saw Jesus as the Savior of the world. And some of you know my story strangely, because when you're in transcendental meditation and Buddhism and they got all kind of wacky ideas about sin, don't even use the term, but I knew something was wrong. I knew something was deeply wrong and they couldn't fix it. When I heard that I was a sinner, I was the happiest person on earth because someone finally told me what was wrong with me. And it could be fixed by Jesus Christ. See, putting sin under the carpet does no good. It's still there. Coming to Jesus, it's taken care of. And God brought me to know his name and I was one confused person for a long time. I was in Pentecostalism, a lot of crazy stuff. But the Lord sorted me out. He continued to make his name known to me. He reveals his person. He's a personal God. He personally loves me. He personally loves every sinner who comes to him. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The only qualification for being saved is are you a sinner and are you ready to turn from your sin to God? Are you willing to do that? That's the qualification. If you know you're a sinner and you know you don't know God, the fix is easy. Jesus came into the world to save you. He knows how to do it. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. He saved the worst of sinners. He's saved the most hardened of sinners. He's saved the nicest sinners. You come to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Show me who you are and save me from my sin. That's the place to be. 
God shows you his being. You start to see the greatness of God, the majesty of God. He shows you his attributes. He's good, he's kind, he's full of love. He's just, he's righteous, he's true, he's faithful. All these things that you learn about God, your Father, in Jesus Christ, and you learn it in the, per- the, the personal realities of life. So you learn about God, not so much about reading a book about him, but by living unto him, he puts you in predicaments, and then you find God to be faithful in this and to be loving in this and to be kind in that and to be just in this. You find him in the experience of life as you read his word, and he connects that together. God will reveal himself to his true people. As Jeremiah 31 later puts it, even though we looked at it, you know, a month or so ago, but Jeremiah later puts it, in the new covenant, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And that is what God is saying here. They will know me, and they will know my name. Therefore, in that day, when I bring this salvation to pass, in that day they will know that I am the one who is speaking And I will say to them, here I am. This will be a personal relationship. This is not having a renewed philosophy about God. It's not being more correct about God. It's not getting your ideas sorted out. This is about knowing God himself when he speaks to your own soul. Sometimes conservatives get a little bit confused on that. They'll say, well, isn't that awful subjective? I'm like, it sure is. And I'm sure glad because I don't come to a slab of marble to learn some doctrines about him. I come to God, my Father, who loves me with an everlasting love and who sheds abroad his love in my heart by the Holy Spirit. I cry, Abba, Father, from the depth of my being. That's Christianity. It's extremely subjective. But it has an absolute control called the Scriptures. And that's what we look to to interpret our experiences. They are oftentimes not self-interpreting. In that day, they're going to know. They're going to know. You're going to know, as John finishes his letter, that we know him and is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The first John was written not to get everybody confused or to get everybody lost. It was written to confirm the saints that you know the true God, that you know, that you know, that you know him who you believe. Here I am. This is foundational to Christianity. Jesus in Matthew 11, 27 and 28, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. I am king. And by way of a cross, I'm going to sit down at the right hand of God. And I will be given all authority in heaven and earth to bring the gospel to the nations. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. There is no one in the universe, no personal being in the universe, who fully knows the Father except the Son. It takes God to know God. And then Jesus says, nor does anyone know the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. Only the Father knows the Son, and no one knows the Father but the Son. And get this, this is like 
This is one of the most mind-blowing statements in Scripture. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That is the beginning of Christianity in someone's life. When someone say, well, that's not enough. You know, evangelism, we've got to tell people they've got to be saved. Well, of course you do. Well, people have to have free will. Well, what? Tell me some sinner out there who has free will when the Bible says they're in total bondage to sin and they're dead in trespasses and sins. How in the world could you ever bring up free will in that context? It just doesn't work. It's just, I mean, did you not hear bondage, spiritual death? Oh, no, no, it's free will. No, there's no free will here. There's the will of God. Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him, there's the will that saves sinners. And what does Jesus do after that? Does he say, therefore, I don't need to do anything? No, he says, hey, I'm going to make an appeal based on the fact that I am the one who reveals the Father to human beings. On that reality, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. One of the best known scriptures for evangelism in the New Testament. Based on what? Sovereign grace. This is sovereign grace. And this is Jesus defining evangelism for us. We need to understand that at bottom we can present the gospel, and we should, and we should do it with gusto all over the place. Next week we'll get into that passage, Blessed are the feet of him who brings glad tidings of great joy. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But it is Jesus who puts the gas in the tank. We preach, we proclaim, we encourage, and Jesus reveals the Father. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of mission work. That's the power of evangelism. Again, in Matthew 16, Jesus said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This is not about free will. But my Father who is in heaven. Peter, the only reason you can give the right answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Peter, the reason you have the right answer is because my Father revealed it to you. Sovereign grace. And sovereign grace that comes not putting people out, but gathering people in. Sovereign grace in which God reveals himself to a human being. My Father who's in heaven. My Father who's in heaven reveals the Son. We know Jesus because the Father who is in heaven revealed him to us. John 10, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. The personal revelation of God to an individual human being is core to Christianity. Here the Son declares that every one of his sheep knows him. I know my own, and they know me. This knowledge is real and deep. It's immediate and personal. Even as I, the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Do you realize what God has done? In Christ. That just as the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father, so you shall and are and shall know Him. Who would ever think that God would give us that access to Himself? 
That is the utter blindness of Islam. God is distant and far away. And here Jesus says, I'm going to bring you to know the Father. And you will know him just like I do. How deep is that? I'm glad Christianity is subjective. Are you? And where was this spoken? About knowing God. Was it not in Jeremiah 31? Is it not in our passage in Isaiah 52? And just like Isaiah chapter 52, and just as we saw in Jeremiah 31, you can read on, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and then I must bring this gospel of knowing the Father just as much as Jesus does is to both Jew and Gentile. One flock, one shepherd, kind of an Ephesians 2 moment, isn't it? Well, our time is up. Next week, we will pick up about how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. I'm going to tell you when the Lord saved me. There was joy in in that city, for me anyway, as it says in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we, Lord, we're just amazed. We can be amazed at the things you've created at a massive heavens and earth that we can't, even, we can't even see to the end of. You've made it so big so that we never will. There it speaks of your transcendence and your majesty, inspires in us awe and just joy that this is how big God is and how just big our God is. There's no end the Lord hears something far deeper. Seeing your physical creation with our eyes is one thing, knowing you from the heart to a depth that is an unfathomable depth that is eternally deeper. And Lord, just pray that you would give us grace, that we would live our lives and have our purpose so that we can know you more. As the Apostle Paul tells us, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Lord, sufferings are part of it. Give us grace to embrace them and to thank you for them and ask wisdom from you and not not be destroyed by them, not be turned away by them. And Lord, we think of 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You make us know you by your spirit, yea, the deep things of God. We know the bathos, the deep things of God by your spirit. Lord, may we never grieve your Holy Spirit, who is the one who gives us this relationship, who sustains this relationship, who sheds abroad in our heart your love, your glory, your power, your purposes, that you are our Father, and that we are your children. And that that's real and deep and forever. Lord, thank you for Isaiah. That we don't have to wonder when people accuse the New Testament of being the invention of the early church. We can laugh, secretly scoff even at how foolish it is. And then just take people to your Old Testament and show you Isaiah spoke of every one of these things we read in the New Testament a long time ago. 
Lord, let us take that to the, to the Muslims who are coming into our country and we don't have to go over there to evangelize them. They're coming to us. This is, this is amazing. We can take them to the Old Testament. They want to say that the, the Gospels have been corrupted. Fine, let's take them to the Old Testament. And do as Paul did everywhere, take that Old Testament and preach Christ to them. Lord Jesus, if there are some here who just aren't saved, who just, all of this is intellectual attainment at best, satisfies perhaps some curiosity, but they can't say that I've heard the voice of God, that they've heard the voice of God, here I am, to their souls. Lord Jesus, you are the only one who can do that final work in a person's heart. We can proclaim, we can encourage, we can exhort, we can plead. But Lord, only you can open that door of a person's heart and bring your light into their lives. And we pray you do it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, again for your great salvation. It's his name we pray. Amen.